Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And this is Big. Strong. Yes. Welcome to Big Strong Yes, the show where we share our journey of reading three books that are inspiring us to embrace courage, creativity, and the call to adventure. Rising Strong by Dr. Brene Brown, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. Yes, today's episode is our first reading in Year of Yes. Hello, I'm old and I like to lie uh, through the prologue, full frontal, and then... Because we realized that the reading was way too short, we added next week's reading, which is chapters one to three. So next week, we're going to be doing Year of Yes, chapter four, Yes to the Sun. Go to chipperish.com, search Big Strong Yes schedule to find all the information about what we're reading and when. That has all been updated. So we've got a new kind of Year of Yes schedule uh, based on this this new revision of the readings, which, you know, we just needed more. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> needed it. needed a little bit more to go on. A little bit more, and uh, and that's not the only thing that's changing. No, it's not. Um, year of yes. Okay, we put this all together. <laughs> so we're trying to find a way to talk about this. Kelly and I made this like whimsical decision, you know, back in May or whenever we started planning this thing that we're going to read these three books and it's these three books. And, you know, these were the three books that she told me to read when my life fell apart and they were really powerful. And we were going to do these three books, you know. So we did Rising Strong and that taught us how to get up after fall. And that was really good. And then we did the creativity thing with Big Magic. And that was good for us because it's about creativity. We had a lot to talk about. Um, But Year of Yes is different. Year of Yes is a memoir. So it's not a how-to guide. It doesn't really apply to everybody universally the way that Rising Strong did or to people creatively the way that Big Magic did. So as we started reading it, we kind of were texting back and forth with each other like, I don't know what we're going to do. We didn't really plan this out. I don't know what we're going to do with this. (laughs) So it's so different from everything else that we've been doing. And, and I was thinking like, why did we decide this book? Why was this book on the list of things, you know? And I think it's because of the yes, because I think we both feel like we need to say yes to things, but I don't think either one of us really knows exactly specifically what we need to say yes to. I mean, I don't think either one of us is struggling necessarily the way that Shonda Rhimes did. We don't say no to everything. You know, I mean, pretty much we've been saying a lot of yes in general. Um, But I think that this book might help us figure that out. And I think that we need to figure that out by sort of investigating why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. Yes. And this is the part that scares me. You know, and you were scared all along of Year of Yes, and I didn't understand why. Yeah. But now that I kind of came in with this idea, which we're going to talk about just a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Because you knew I was going to come in and get and be like, oh, let's do this, you know? Yes. (laughs) It's interesting. This is the book that scares me. And this is the book that has scared me all along. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So memoir has always fascinated me as a genre. But the people who write it seem to possess a courage and like a sense of security that I do not have. You know, but Rising Strong, it taught us how to reckon and rumble and stand back up. And I know how to do those things. I've learned the hard way how to do those things. You know, and Big Magic taught us how to fall back in love with creativity and the magic of the universe. And that kind of love is what I want in my life. And so I was willing to learn. But Year of Yes 
is about someone else's story. Yeah. You know, it's it's about Shonda Rhimes finding her authentic way to her authentic badassery. Mm-hmm. And when I first read it, it was so damn inspiring and so powerful and so awesome. But, like, was it real for me? Like, <laughs> really real? <laughs> I mean... Her life is about as different from mine as, as it can get, mm-hmm. I think. And I can't imagine saying yes to the things that she says yes to. So, like, what am I going to say yes to? I have no idea. <laughs> Until Lonnie said, hey, I have this idea for completely restructuring Big Strong Yes. And I thought, oh, shit. I knew I was scared of something, and this is it. And it was me. It was me. It because was- you don't know what I'm going to do at any given moment. You never know which way I'm going to go. And, you know, I mean, I wanted to do BSY for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, my life had fallen apart and I just needed something to do. I needed work to fill every spare minute because work is the only time. And it's still this way. It's the only time when I feel like me. You know, I feel connected with myself. Um, another reason was I wanted to work with you, you know, um, and that has been a joy every Every minute. So mm-hmm. that was really great. Um, and, you know, I wanted to um, go through Rising Strong. Rising Strong was the real appeal for me because I'm in the middle of recovery and I needed that, you know. And so Big Magic and Year of Yes were ideas that I liked and books that I liked. And I got a lot more, I think, out of Big Magic recovery wise than I than I had thought that I would, you know. Right. But mm-hmm. here we are at Year of Yes. And I feel, and I don't know, and I'm very nervous about this, and I know I've made you incredibly nervous about this, (laughs) but Year of Yes, I feel like it's about telling our stories, you know, and it's, it's the process of telling your story that speaks to me more than specifically this grand idea of saying yes, because I've always said yes. I mean, part of my problem may be that I always say yes, you know, um, yes is about risk. And I have taken risks my whole life. And sometimes they've worked out and sometimes they have not. Um, and now here I am in a crumpled heap. But is that is it would have been worse if I just said no, if I played it safe, you know, and I, and I don't know the answer to that question. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, Kelly knows this, because we were talking about it a bit is that I, I feel this need to like, tell my story, to talk about my experience and what it is that I've been going through the way that Shonda Rhimes is talking about her experience, you know? And as I was reading this, I was thinking, we should tell our stories. And then I said that to Kelly. And Kelly was like, yep, that's why I was afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really funny, Mm -hmm. because... I didn't know that was why I was afraid until you said it. You were afraid of me. I know. But you knew. Yes. You knew but, that I was going to do something made, crazy and shift everything well, around. Yeah, but it made such perfect sense because Year of Yes is about Shonda Rhimes' year of saying yes to things, but the book is her story yes. of that year. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how do you have a year of yes or how do you have a transformational experience without coming full circle and telling that story. Yeah. And it really is about the power of storytelling. And and honestly, Brene Brown did that in Rising Strong. I mean, yeah. her work got real when she started telling her story. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Gilbert did that in Big Magic by sharing her stories. And a lot of the Big Strong Yes community has has happened from people sharing their stories. And yeah. I think part of this is is us wanting to encourage 
you know, other people to do that as well and to engage with their stories and to embrace their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in order to do that and in order to support you, that means I have to tell mine, um, which tips the vulnerability scale about as far as possible. Right. I'm me. used to this. I'm used to being vulnerable <laughs> in a public space. I mean, you know, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. But I mean, it's I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. This is not typical for you. So I'm kind of dragging you into a space that is really uncomfortable for you. And I, I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> No, you don't. You're not bad enough to let you off the hook. (laughs) But okay, so I talked about why I did BSY. Why did you do BSY? So I had wanted to podcast for years. Mm -hmm. Um, I had studied podcasting as a phenomenon and actually helped bring it to the university where I worked in 2005, Mm -hmm. very shortly after iTunes was first launched. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually trained by Apple very early on (gasps) and did a lot of early work with podcasting in an academic space. Um, did a lot of, of research around it and a lot of faculty development around it. But all of the fears that Elizabeth Gilbert talked about in Big Magic stopped me, mm-hmm. right? Because who would want to listen to me? And what did I have to talk about anyway? And plus, I have always hated, like deeply loathed the sound of my own voice. So I thought a lot about podcasting, but I never actually did it. And then I got to be friends with you and life changed. <laughs> And one does not simply turn down the chance to podcast with Lonnie. Simply is not done. Oh, God. Please. So, I mean, big strong yes is, is one of the best things I ever said yes to. Oh, good. I'm glad. And I will always be grateful to the universe for our friendship mm-hmm. and for this podcast. But when we started talking about big strong yes and about structuring a podcast around these three books, I thought we would talk about the books. Right. I'm an academic for crying out loud. <laughs> I thought there would be footnotes, citations, <laughs> reference lists, y'all. Like, I, I never imagined that I would be telling any of my own stories or that anyone would be interested if I did. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, when someone's hurting and you're laying on the ground with them and you think, okay, this helped me, this might help you. Mm-hmm. Like, I recommended these three books to you in an enthusiastic, passionate, reckless sort of way because they'd come to me as sort of a holy trinity, and I thought they would help you. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really think it through in terms of the podcast. (laughs) Well, neither did I. (laughs) And I knew Rising Strong and Big Magic pretty much inside out because I'd read them a bunch of times. But Year of Yes, I've only read twice. Mm -hmm. Only twice, and I have not reread it since starting this podcast. And Mm -hmm. that is me resisting this reading. Mm -hmm. Like, that is me terrified of this book. Because I think maybe I knew on some level that you, one of the most brilliant storytellers I've ever (laughs) known, would say, hey, you know what? We should tell some of our stories here, right? (laughs) So I think, like, saying yes to Big Strong Yes sort of shocked me. Mm -hmm. Um Because I have said yes mostly to the wrong things in my life, and I have said no to some things that might have made me happy, because I always question the yes. Mm -hmm. But I want to say yes to the things that are right, and most of all, I want to figure out what those right things are. Yeah. So I think that's why I'm here. Okay, so this is going to be kind of interesting, because we are going to talk about the book. You know, we're going to talk about, and we're going to kind of jump off from whatever points of interest strike us, and then tell our stories alongside with the book. And, you know, and I have that same thing, like, who the hell wants to listen to me? You know, who wants to listen to me talk about this stuff? And this is, 
you know, my personal stuff and the things that I'm going through. And in the same way that Shonda Rhimes' personal stuff is, you know, is very personal, and very specific to her. Like, so are my things. Like, how is this going to be valuable to anybody else? Because that's always the way that I look at things, right? If I can do it and it can be a value to people. Like when I'm talking about stories, I think this can be a value to people because I have knowledge. You know, like mm -hmm. I have like... But when I'm talking about me, when I'm talking about my life, like, how is that of value to anybody else? Um, and the thing is that, like, I, I can't worry about that right now. Like, I am doing big, strong yes for me. And if everybody listening to this hates me and hates my stories, then turn it off and email me. I will email you a ton of fantastic podcasts that you should go listen to immediately. Um, I will give you <laughs> all sorts of references for great, great podcasts that you should listen to. One I listened to recently was Heavyweight uh, with Jonathan Goldstein, who is a fantastic oral storyteller. And, uh, and I think everybody should be listening to the work that he does. Um, so that's one that's a freebie right there but if you hate me and you hate my <laughs> stories just stop listening it's okay you don't have to listen um but i want to tell them and i feel like i need to tell them i feel somewhat stuck right now at this space that i'm in and as year of yes as i started reading it i kept thinking i kept launching into like my own history and my own experiences and and what do shonda's experiences mean you know, next to mine, like, like, how does that connect with what she's talking about? So this was my idea. Um, this may be a terrible idea. This may ruin the podcast for everybody. We may lose all of our listenership, but we're going to go through and do this thing. And Kelly, I'm so sorry, because I know that like, when you hitch yourself to my wagon, it can be a really <laughs> unpredictable ride. And I understand that. Like I have sympathy for my children and for everybody who has ever loved me because that's how I roll. It's just who I am. Um, I make a decision on a split second and I just do it. And if it works out great and if it doesn't, I'll just do something else, you know? Um, so this is going to be weird. Uh, this is yeah. going to be different. Um, I think it's going to be, I hope it's going to be valuable. I actually, when I was writing down my stories in our show notes, um, I was actually really uncomfortable with it. And then Kelly started sharing her stories and I was so interested in them. I wanted oh to hear them. And that's no. what made me know that this was the right decision. <laughs> no, see, this is how I know that the universe is in fact an ironic trickster who <laughs> loves, loves <laughs> laughing at me because when you started writing your story in the show notes and I thought, okay, I want to support her in this. I will try I have talked about courage on this podcast for weeks. God damn it. I will try to do this thing. And so I read through the book and just pulled out the instances that spoke to me that triggered a story. Right. So I was looking for a trigger. I was looking for a catalyst. Mm -hmm. And I used to teach this for a class that I taught for adults who were coming back to college. I had mm -hmm. them write their learner autobiography. So I would have them write their story of being a student so that they could do some reflection on what it had meant to them to be a learner up until that point in their life. And I would give them different prompts, you know, to kind of help them with that process. And so I went in looking for the, the triggers. I went in looking for the catalysts. And so I kind of pulled out a few sentences that would help me, you know, write. And I ended up writing some stories. Yeah. And then you read the damn stories. <laughs> and then you sent me a text and said... I wasn't sure about this format, but when I read your stories, I knew it was right. And I thought, oh, hell, what did I have I done? <laughs> yeah. So irony, trickster, magic, 
I have no idea. But you know what? You want to do this thing, honey? I am here to do this thing with you. All right. So we're going to do the thing. Let's just do it. Let's Let's just do it. See how it goes. And and for everybody listening, I'm sorry. This is just what we're doing. (laughs) No. And you know what? Maybe it'll be great. And maybe Maybe they want to write their stories or share their stories or talk about their stories too. But this is one way to engage with memoir. Yeah, no, it really is. And I think that if it encourages people to tell their stories, because this is one of the things happening a lot in the Discord chat, you know, right? Because people are coming in and they are telling their stories. They're talking about their things. They're not talking about necessarily the podcast. You know, they're, they're sharing these stories and they're being supportive for each other. And I think that that's an incredible thing. And so anybody listening, however you decide you know, you want to tell your story. If you want to do a podcast, if you want to write a blog, if you want to, you know, just share it in Discord, you know, or in, you know, little snippets on Twitter. Um, I think that it's, it's valuable. And, and one of the most empowering things for me is hearing other people's stories, you know, because you know, you're not alone. That's right. You know, so I really do like that. So let's go ahead and get started um, with hello, I'm old, and I like to lie. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great introduction. It is. It is really great. Um, and I will go ahead and start because I know I'm dragging you into this thing and I've, I've, I've kind of pushed oh, yeah, you into baby. the You are going pool. first. I'm going first. All right, You're great. going first. Um, so one of the first things that spoke to me um, in this reading was when she says, I often had to choose between wine and things like toilet paper. Steak did not even enter into the equation. It was wine or toilet paper. Wine or toilet paper. The toilet paper did not always win. Did I just see you give me a look? What's that? Did you just judge me? No, you are not about to come up into this book and judge me. And I loved the way that she said that. I loved the way that she just rejected completely the judgment of others. Whereas in my life entirely, I have always embraced the judgment of others. And when others did not judge me, I proceeded to judge myself for them. (laughs) You know, so I I thought that that I really loved the way that she did that. And I love her general attitude. And this was like the first kind of moment where I was like, okay, you know, when have I ever done that in my life? And I don't have a story for that because I never have, but I like it. Um, So there's a point later on. where she says, this book is not fiction. It's not about the characters that I made up. It doesn't take place at Seattle Grace or Pope and Associates. It's about me. It takes place in reality. It's supposed to be just the facts. And that was the moment that opened up this idea for me, the process of telling your story, that our, our memories are malleable. Because she's talking about how she doesn't necessarily remember everything exactly the way that it was. She doesn't know if the story as she's telling it is exactly the way that it happened, but it's the way that she understands it. It's the way that she remembers it. Um, and our memories there, there's actually like, um, you know, studies that have been done that when you tell yourself a story over and over and over again, it becomes reality for you. Even if, you know, in the actual experience itself, you know, some details might've been different or whatever. Um, but when you tell yourself that story, it becomes real. And so I'm thinking about the stories that I've been telling myself. And like, you know, we go right back to rising strong, right? The story that I'm telling myself is right. Cause that's mm-hmm. what defines your reality. And so it was at this point in the reading where I was thinking, you know, what is the story that I've been telling myself? What are the stories that I've been using to define my reality? 
you know, for so long. And they are stories that that bring me down, that, that see me in the worst possible light, that look at me and myself and the way that I behaved and who I've been as, as an incredibly negative thing, as never good enough, you know? Um, and so then I go back to what I got from Big Magic, which is when reality is open to interpretation, choose magic, you know? Mm-hmm. And I haven't done that. Um, and, and I've been really resistant to it, you know, recently because I've, I've ceased to believe in magic. But I, I think that there's something to the way that you tell your stories and how you form them that then forms you, you know? And so like, as I was reading this part, I was, that's what I was thinking about. And that's what kind of got me onto this idea about you know, and I have this question in the notes. Is this the part of the podcast where we start telling our stories? We are the assembled mass of our stories. And maybe if we look at our stories, we will find our particular yes. And so those are my notes for hello, <laughs> I'm old and I like to lie. <laughs> um, and and that was where this idea kind of kind of came forth. So So what did you get out of that part? So I took your dare here and ran with it. <laughs> um, my favorite quote from this section, she mm-hmm. said, I thoroughly enjoy making stuff up. Fingers crossed behind my back, flights of fancy make my motor run, shake my groove thing, turn me on. My brain turns toward fiction like a flower to the sun. And I was like, Amen, sister. She is (laughs) so fantastic. She is so wonderful. And there's such a wonderful rhythm and repetition to her writing. There's a musical quality Mm -hmm. to it. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love this book so much. Yeah. Um, But she talked about getting in trouble for making up stories and lying uh, when she was in school. And she had this kind of repetitive phrase, knees, church, nuns, rosary. And I just (laughs) loved it. I loved that that image. Um, and that phrase kind of triggered the story for me mm-hmm. because I was born a lover of story in a family that deeply distrusts all things fantastic mm-hmm. and raised in a fundamentalist sort of church that twisted stories for its own purposes. So telling the truth was like a non-exacting science because the truth was dictated mm-hmm. you know, by my parents or whoever was in charge and it could change on a whim. And asking too many questions got me in a lot of trouble, and I learned early to keep my own stories to myself. So I turned to books instead and lived in those stories, and I got really good at hiding the books that were not allowed. And so, (laughs) (laughs) like, really good at hiding (laughs) all kind of books and sneaking in books and Mm -hmm. covering the covers of books with other covers of other books. (laughs) So I was very creative, um, but nothing could keep me from reading them. Mm -hmm. But I think because of that, like fiction is holy to me yeah. because stories are almost always better than reality and magic exists between the covers of books. And once the ideas are in your head, no one can take them away from you. Mm -hmm. And in that way, storytellers are heroic to me because they bring different realities into being. And the writers who did that for me when I was a kid, they saved me, you know, Mm -hmm. and they showed me that the things that I love had value and that there were other ways of viewing the world and that words had a deep power all their own. 
So to me, storytellers are holy liars and stories are holy truths. And the courage it takes to tell that kind of truth moves me to my core. Mm -hmm. So I love hearing writers tell their own stories. And that's one reason I was drawn to Year of Yes. Yeah. You know, like because mm-hmm. she's a writer and, and you get some of the behind the stories of some of her stories, mm-hmm. you know, through throughout this book. And and when I thought about it, that was also true for Elizabeth Gilbert and Brene Brown. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't really make that connection, you know, in, until I wrote this. All right. So the other quote from this introduction that got me, she said, there's a hum that happens inside my head when I hit a certain writing rhythm, a certain speed. Everything inside me just shifts. I break the writing barrier. And the feeling of laying track changes, transforms, shifts from exertion into exaltation. Oh, man. I mean, she's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. So the hum was what brought me to your yes. Mm -hmm. Because hearing Shonda Rhimes describe the hum in her TED Talk lit me up and set me on fire. And my heart just cried out, yes, like this, this, this. Because I know that hum. And it happens sometimes when I'm writing. It happens sometimes with music and with some poetry. And it happens when I'm in deep conversation with someone I love or telling a truly hilarious story or when I'm teaching something I'm passionate about or when I'm lost in a transformational learning experience or lost in the right book or lost in thought or on the rarest of occasions completely enthralled in a magical idea with someone else. That hum of wonder, of story, of creativity, of magic, I know that hum. And I want to feel it more. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's I like how fun. she says it, too. Yeah, no, she does. Um, and I really like the way that she expresses that, because I think that it is um, it's it's part of that creativity, you know, like that mm-hmm. flow that you get when you're in that really creative space, which brings us back again to big magic, you know. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's, it's a very cool way to express mm-hmm. that. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. So that brings us into the prologue, Full Frontal. Right. It's also <laughs> such a great name. I, know. I love that. Well, we have it. this this thing that she says, a lady never shows her soul outside the boudoir, <laughs> which, yes. by the way, is a great, a great word and a great way of expressing that. And I mean, that really speaks to like the vulnerability that comes with sharing your story. And so this idea of mine that we tell our own stories in this part of the podcast, um, I feel like simultaneously that is the right thing to do and it is also like a very very bad idea you know like feel like we're so certain incredibly reassuring right <laughs> exactly because I'm dragging you along on this and I'm like I don't know I think it's probably a bad idea um you know I feel like we're certain to lose a lot of listeners that who wants to hear my sad stupid story but I can tell you this that like I need to tell it like my heart mm-hmm. has been dark and weighed down for a really long time. And I mean, a long time from before my marriage broke up. I mean, for most of my second marriage, that has really been the truth of the situation. I I didn't want to acknowledge it, but that was the truth. I mean, he force fed me a reality and I lived in it every day, but it wasn't true. And part of me knew it. And I don't know if this was your experience of an abusive relationship, but it's been mine. You kind of split into two parts. Like there is this part of you that knows that is screaming at you and that wants you to just figure it out. And whenever that part of me came to the surface, you know, he drowned it. He would say that I was just spinning. I was tired. I was stressed. I needed sleep. And then he would hold that part of me under water until it stopped struggling, you know, and 
Now that part of me is above the surface again and is trying to like reintegrate with the part of me that lived in the lie for six years and the part of me that allowed like all of this to happen, not just to me, you know, but to my daughters, you know, and that part of me, the part of me that knew the part of me that was, was talking the whole time, the part of me that was telling me that this wasn't right, wants to be heard, like finally heard, recognized and believed of and course you do. I guess that this podcast is the arena in which that fight <laughs> is going to happen, that dirty, muddy, bloody fight mm -hmm. where both parts of myself are going to fight for that story until they can agree on something that that actually makes sense, you know, and that's where I am with this. So when I was reading this part of it, that's what I was thinking about that, like, we are shamed into not telling our stories and this recent rash of of sexual harassment you know, stories that people are telling this, this hashtag me too, that's been going on. Um, I think that that has been, um, has, is a big part of, of that need to tell the story and to be heard and to be recognized and to be believed. Sure. You know, makes sense. Yeah. And I just had this, when you were talking, I had this really interesting visual about the arena. Yeah. Cause you know, we had this, um, this thought at one point that we like shifted, the arena from a boxing ring to, oh, the arena is a dance floor. And yeah. now I'm thinking like, okay, the arena is like a transformational motherfucker. Yeah. And just when you get settled and like, just when you think you know what you're doing, the floor shifts and like the lights come down and everything changes. And mm -hmm. you know how like if you go to like one of those auditoriums that shows like it has the ability to do like dancing on ice and like monster trucks right. in the same... <laughs> same venue yeah that is the arena that is the arena that is, is the arena. a shape-shifting mofo that is what it yes. is <laughs> the arena is a shape-shifting mofo and so at times like the mud's going to come back down yeah. <laughs> on mm -hmm. the ground Absolutely. and that's just that's just how it rolls <laughs> so that is that's like, like that. what i have in my head now <laughs> All right, so what did you get from the full frontal? Yeah. I love the quote from this. Yeah. She said, writing about myself feels a lot like I have just decided to stand up on a table in a very proper restaurant, raise my dress, and show everyone that I'm not wearing panties. <laughs> that is to say, it feels shocking. Yes. It puts the bits of me that I usually keep to myself on display. Naughty bits. Naughty bits. Secret bits. <laughs> <laughs> naughty bits I think is my new favorite phrase I like it and you know Shonda Rhimes describes herself as a deep introvert mm -hmm. and anyone who meets me would probably say that I'm an extrovert mm -hmm. I'm outgoing I'm talkative sometimes I'm overly talkative and I am unafraid of leading or inviting a conversation I can talk to a brick wall <laughs> and I think that comes from moving around a lot as a mm -hmm. kid because when you change schools like a dozen times or more, you learn how to talk to lots of different people yeah, and kind of how to fake it till you make it in terms of acting comfortable around people. And then after years of teaching and presenting, like I know how to be on in front of a group so I can lead a meeting or facilitate a discussion. I can teach a damn good workshop. Mm -hmm. And I'm usually easy with people unless they give me a reason not to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm easily friendly and flirtatious and mm -hmm. playful, you know, with people I like. Right. So I look like an extrovert. <laughs> but at the core of me, when things get personal, I'm really an introvert. 
Like mm-hmm. the real emotions, the real stories, those kinds of secret bits. Mm-hmm. Like that's a whole nother story and not the kind I share easily. Like you know that. You even, if you even get like emotional or I have to tell you something, like I shrink up and yeah. the words don't come out of my mouth. <laughs> like I have an incredibly <laughs> difficult time with this. Mm-hmm. You know, so the vulnerability in true stories is hard and frightening yeah. and kind of mortifying and. Like, just writing those show notes made me breathe a little faster and turn red and feel all kinds of stupid. Because, oh, I like, know. You freaked out. Like, what if somebody actually <laughs> listens to this? <laughs> you know? And plus, I am incredibly boring, and all I have done is raise a kid and work for the last 18 years. So I don't have a lot of, like, exciting stories to share. So there's okay, that, too. <laughs> I, I reject the premise that you're boring, but go ahead. No. That was it. (laughs) So I'm like, this is me on the restaurant table next to Shonda Rhyme going, hey, my panties are gone too, honey, what's up? I know. This is a crazy idea and I'm dragging you along with me on it. So I'm sorry. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) Well, I think it's the right thing to do. So I'm just going to keep going. So chapter one. (laughs) (laughs) But I figured if it was the wrong thing to do, I wouldn't have been able to write anything. And the words came out. Yeah. Even though I kind of was kind of hoping they wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. But that's when I knew it was right was when I read your stuff. And yeah, I was so like, you're... I'm interested in that. I want to hear your stories. And so I'm going to to share mine, which Good. is which is fine. Um, so chapter one, which is just titled No, you know, mm-hmm. which is the, the, the life of no that Shonda Rhimes had lived up until this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was reading this, I, the thought and the question that I had and the question that I posed to you was, can you remember a moment like this, like one moment that when you look back on it, changed the way that you look at your life, you know? And the thing that came to me was um, when I went away to college, I mean, I grew up as, as everybody <laughs> you know, listen to me knows. I grew up in a, in a household that was, that was emotionally difficult. Um, my mother had a, a personality disorder and it made things very, very difficult for me. But when I went away to college, I was suddenly completely in charge of my life. And I had been mostly in charge of my life when I was in high school. I mean, no one cared what I did or where I did it or who I did it with or when I came home. And despite all that freedom, or maybe even because of it, because I had nothing to rebel against, like I, I was the good girl. I did everything right. I was the designated driver. I went to parties, but I was sober. You know, I would have like <laughs> one beer and then I would drive everybody else home and make sure everybody gets uh, got home safe and this kind of thing. You know, I got really good grades. I was in the honor society. I got a job. I bought my own things, you know, and this was all while I was in high school, you know, um, I got myself into college. I did my, you know, college application and paid for that myself. And, um, you know, and then I went and I got to college and I was truly free. I mean, I was surrounded by people. I partied. I had a great time. Um, but I was always like in high school, really insecure about who I was, you know, and really insecure. And I, and I realized, of course, I've carried that with me through my whole life. Like, why would anybody love me? You know, um, that has been a, a recurrent theme throughout my life. Um, but I drank and I drank a lot, you know, and I had a great time. And the thing that I realized is that when I went out and I drank and I had some beers, like people loved me. I felt for the first time in my life, like truly secure in who I was. I mean, I would go out and I was funny and I was vivacious and I was interesting and we had a great time. And then 
one day I realized like I was always that person, whether I was drinking or not. And that was the first moment in my life that I started to feel like me. Like when I keep saying like, I'm not me, like I know who I am. That's at the core of who I am. Like I am an extrovert, you know, I'm an extrovert who's unfortunately also an empath. So I love Mm. being around people and I love having a great time, but I have to shut myself off because I pick up people's energy, you know, Mm -hmm. and if I'm around somebody who's in a lot of pain or who is exceedingly negative, like it, it affects me, you know, deeply. So, you know, I was always this person and, you know, and I realized that I didn't have to drink and it wasn't about the drinking. So I never became like a huge, I mean, I drank in college. I mean, let's not, you know, let's not mince words or anything. Like I was, I was a drinker in college. I had a great time, you know, but I didn't need it when I wasn't drinking. When I was sober, I was still that same person. And I realized that I could just decide to have confidence in that. I could just decide to believe in that and just have it. And that is the crazy thing about confidence is that, It is, it feels so elusive, but it really is just about the decision to have it. And ever since then, I've always had like this really insane level of confidence in the things that I do. Like I go out and I just decide I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a book and then I got it published and then I got it at eight, you know, like all this stuff. Um, I decide I'm going to do a podcast and I just go and do it. And I drag my friends along with me. I mean, Kelly, you (laughs) are one in a long line of people that I have forced to podcast with me, you know? Um, And so I realized that, that this is who I am. And and that person in college that I that I was like, that was the me before all of this before the abuse and my split down the middle, you know, and that is the me that I'm, I'm trying to get back now. And at different times in my life, I really have been fully that woman, you know, when I would go to conferences, when I was when I was first started writing, and I was publishing all these books, and I was going to these writer conferences, like I would go, and I was me, like I knew who I was, and I was connected with who I am. When I'm teaching, I know who I am, and I'm connected to that person. Um, and now, you know, I feel very split. I am sometimes that person, but a lot of the times when I'm not doing the work, when I'm not in that space, I feel really disconnected with who I am. I'm not integrated, you know, mm-hmm. which is one of the things we're talking about in Rising Strong, like that integration. And I feel like in order for me to be that person again, I have to stitch her back together because the six years of abuse have, have split her down the middle, you know, and I need to be that whole person again. And so that is kind of the thing that I'm coming to now. And that's that's what I was thinking about during the the chapter of no. <laughs> so yeah. what were you thinking about? What did you what did you think about for that? Well, I was thinking about what you said about being split into mm-hmm. from abuse. And I I don't have the answer yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to think about it because I I don't know how I would describe that. Um, and my experience with it is a little bit different than yours. But I think it may be close to that idea. So I want to think about it. Yeah, somewhere. I don't know if you had that experience, if you felt that way. But there was a part of me that knew. There was a part of me that was oh. screaming about <laughs> it. Yeah, there was no, there was never a doubt. <laughs> like, <laughs> there was never a... Um, Gee, I wonder if I'm being abused by this Well, because your like, relationship was a physical abuse relationship. I mean, you yeah. know, like, when that's happening. And emotional abuse, part well, of you I knows, the, but part of you I doesn't the, know. You can convince yourself yeah, that the, it's not real. Yeah, the wonderful combination deal of that. But it, it still, 
there's still something about it that makes you wonder, surely this is not as bad as I think it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, And mm-hmm. you're still able to pull yourself back to it's either you have two choices. Either mm-hmm. it's not as bad as I think it is or it is this bad and I deserve it for some reason. Right. Mm-hmm. And so always trying to figure out which end of that was real, I think, maybe where that feeling of being split comes from. Yeah. Because it was as bad as I thought it was. It was a lot worse <laughs> yeah, than I was willing yeah. to admit that it Me was. Too. And mm-hmm. I didn't deserve any of that. Yeah. You know, um, but it, it definitely makes you feel, I, I guess I just always thought of it more as being diminished than split. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because his, you know, to be disregarded, so, you know, so much by another mm-hmm. person that way. Yeah. That eventually I had to wonder if, like, if he can treat me that badly, then there has to be something bad in me. Otherwise, how did he find me? Right? Like, how how did that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, And and that that takes a lot of work to Mm -hmm. realize that that's darkness in him and not me. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm going to have to think about the split. Because I think there's something there. So, yeah. So for chapter one, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> the, <laughs> like, the quote, you never say yes to anything. Yeah. Um, so I started thinking about things I have said no to. And you asked, "Is can you remember a moment like this, one moment, that when you look back on it, change the way you look at your life? Mm-hmm. And I have an answer, but it's a long answer. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I have to tell the whole story to get to the answer. Mm-hmm. So I feel kind of bad because this is a long story. Tell the whole story. We want to hear so, it. I want to hear it. It's a long story. So college at first was a total disaster for me. Um, I was supposed to be a good student. I was very smart. I had skipped my senior year of high school and had done a year of early enrollment and earned a year of credit. So I should have been way ahead of the game. But there were four problems with this plan. One was I had a scholarship to a college I did not want to attend, but where my parents insisted that I go. And the social life of that school was based on being in a sorority, which I refused to join. (laughs) And I was what Shonda Rhimes would call an FOD. Mm -hmm. So a first only different. Um, I was a first generation college student. I was the only person in my family to have attended um, different than most of the girls on campus. Mm -hmm. Like. I was not walking around in pastel skirts and a ponytail doing the (laughs) sorority thing. When they came to recruit me, um, they actually came to my house to try to pick me up for one of the sororities. Because you get points for the GPA, you know, of of the girls in your sorority house. Mm -hmm. And four of them got out of the car and they look like little Easter eggs. Because they were all like (laughs) all different shades of pastel. And I was sitting on my front porch in, like, ripped jeans and Doc Martin boots, smoking a cigarette and, like, rereading Wuthering Heights. And, like, this was a relationship that was just not meant to be. Like, it was just not. I love that visual, though. Yeah, it That's was just awesome. not going to happen. And they were telling me all the rules of being in their little sorority. And I was like, uh-huh, bye. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that was the social structure of yeah everything on campus. And it was not something that I wanted. Um And so going in as a first-generation college student with no support and no clue what I was getting into. So I already had many, many strikes against me. Plus, I had an attitude problem. (laughs) 
And I had like no sense of self, no self-worth, and no sense of what I actually wanted to do with my Mm -hmm. life. And I had fallen deeply in love entirely too young and had been engaged Mm -hmm. and had just a few weeks before called off a wedding three weeks before the wedding date. Oh, God. And was shaken to my core from Mm -hmm. the resulting breakup. And like the only thing in my world was the pain of losing the man that in retrospect, maybe I should have married. And so like studying or actually going to class was like the (laughs) last damn thing on my mind. So this is not the best way to go to college. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is not a good plan. And so that led to a couple of years of failing out and dropping out and starting over and failing out and dropping out and starting over. So like wash, rinse, repeat. Like I was an academic wreck. Personally, I was even more of a wreck. So I became a highly dysfunctional party girl. Um, All that partying hardcore that you did not do in college, (laughs) I did for you. No worries. (laughs) I covered enough ground for both of us before I was even old enough to legally drink. So Mm -hmm. I I got you covered. Um, (laughs) But shortly after that breakup, I met and started dating the man who would, you know, change my life forever. And two very abusive years with him almost completely broke me, you know, and he left me deeply damaged, alienated from everyone that I had known, Mm -hmm. um, and alone and pregnant when I was 20. Oh, my God. And so after my son was born, and I had like, I think I waited six weeks, maybe seven, um, I went back to school for real. Wow. Like with a vengeance, um, because I wanted it now. Mm -hmm. I was 21. I was a single unwed mother, and I wanted to be a college graduate on top of that. And it mattered, and I was willing to fight for it. So I took five or six classes a semester. I took an overload every semester that they would let me. Mm -hmm. And I drove back home between classes to breastfeed my baby and studied all night and wrote papers with that baby on my hip and studied until I could not see straight. Read the textbooks to my son as bedtime stories and (laughs) did not watch TV or movies or read for fun and worked my ass off to earn that degree with honors. Um. But I was so sleep deprived at one point that I blacked out at the top of the staircase and fell down the stairs like full head first tumble. And it's a miracle I did not break my neck. But I still have a scar on my mouth because I bit all the way through my lip. um, And it was scary as hell. Oh, my God. Like everything hurt. But I did not have health insurance or money for a doctor's visit. So I rested for a couple of hours and popped to Advil and went to class and took a final exam with my, oh my mouth God. still bleeding. And girl, I aced that fucking final. Of course you did. <laughs> it's like, you know, baby in school and school and baby. And that was it. And that was all. Oh, my God. And my son took his first step when I was in class and I missed it. Uh-huh. But I got that degree finished in 18 months. But there was one class. There was one elective my last semester that mm-hmm. I got to pick. And it was just, it was an elective, and I got to pick anything I wanted. And so for the sheer joy of it, I took an introduction to Irish literature. Oh, my and God. I think, like, there have been very few things I have loved so much before or since. And at the end of that course, my professor invited me to apply for a graduate program at Trinity University in Dublin, Ireland, <laughs> because she was impressed with my work and with my writing. And she even invited me to stay at her summer house there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Because she lived, she lived there every summer and, mm-hmm. you know, in the U.S. the rest of the year. 
And I said no without even thinking about it because Mm -hmm. my son was 18 months old and I had just gotten a job that was about to start right after I graduated. And I was like not going to throw away job security for some, you know, romantic idea of grad school. (laughs) And I could not even fathom the idea of moving to another country, you know, where Mm -hmm. I knew nobody with a toddler in tow. Yeah. But I regret that no very, very much. Um, I had no idea that graduate students can find, you know, TA jobs or support or that Mm -hmm. universities might have childcare or family housing. Like, I didn't even know any of that was possible. Yeah. It sounded impossible. Um, And it sounded like too much to wish for, so I just said no. But she planted the seed in my head for going to graduate school, Mm -hmm. which, honestly, like, I knew people went to graduate school, but I didn't really know, like, I didn't really know what it was. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a schema for that before her. I had never considered it. I'd sure as hell never considered becoming a professor. <laughs> you know, like never. Yeah. But she saw something in me and she held up that mirror for me. And it took me years to see it too. But when I did decide to apply for graduate school, she wrote my first letter of recommendation. Oh, my God. Um, and so my no became a yes, sort of. Like I, I never, I never went back and studied literature and writing like mm-hmm. I wanted to, but I did go to grad school and build a career out of a different field. Um, but Ireland still calls to me. Oh so man. Well, maybe, you know, you should go. Yeah, maybe that'll be a yes one day. Maybe that will be a yes. That is an incredible story. And I just, I don't know how you are not like so impressed with your own badassery. How you don't walk around every day being like, yeah, I know it. Like how? <laughs> oh, my God. When I read that, I am so embarrassed. Like all I feel is embarrassed. That, oh that's God. it. That's, that's the so only emotion amazing. in me. No. Having a baby and then going back to school and making <sighs> that happen and graduating with honors. And I mean, that is impressive as hell. No. I just feel like, oh, my God. And then I think that was a long ass story and I should have shut up 10 minutes ago. And why the fuck am I telling this stuff in the first place? It's a (laughs) that's where my brain is. (laughs) It's a great story. No, I think that that's incredible. So, you know, what I'm talking about that moment that changed your life. Is it when you're telling this story? Is it the yes of going back to school and making that happen? Or is it the no to going to Ireland? I think it was the yes of going to school mm-hmm. ferociously. Yeah. And then having her give me the idea that I could keep going. Yeah. You know, having someone tell me, hey, you know what? You're really capable of graduate school. Yeah. Because that never would have dawned on me in a million years by myself. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And look at you now, Dr. Kelly Jones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next chapter is chapter two, maybe. And this is where she talks about the grenade that her Mm -hmm. sister had had set for her, had pulled the pin on, but it was still ticking. You know, Um, this you never say yes to anything. Right. And so Shonda is telling this story and she says the grenade goes off. I'm miserable. You know, even with all of her success, Everything that she's been doing, which is amazing. You know, these three kids, this happy family that she has, the grenade goes off. I'm miserable. So that was the sentence that stopped me because I I wanted to think about that for a bit. Like we're doing this project, we're reading these books, we're taking these lessons into our hearts. 
you know, and why are we drawn to do this podcast or the people drawn to listen to this podcast? You know, it is not because we are happy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think about that. I'm like, why aren't we happy? We are adults. We are in charge of our own lives, you know, and, and some of us, you know, listening to this podcast have actually had happy childhoods like me and Kelly, not so much, um, <laughs> but we are now adults. We are in charge of our lives, like, why are we miserable? And I understand, like, for me, right now, you know, I'm a victim of domestic abuse. I mean, the man I loved with all my heart, and that I gave my entire self and my soul to and my children to, like, deliberately and willfully and selfishly hurt both me and my kids because it suited him, you know, he needed us to need him. And so he manipulated every situation to make us need him. He undermined our confidence, not just me. He did this to my kids too. You know, uh, he undermined our senses of ourselves and our own capability because when we were weakened, we wouldn't fight back. And when we did fight back, he became cruel. And when we still fought back anyway, that's when he found a new victim and he ran off. So, mm-hmm. you know, okay, like that's a serious thing. That's a terrible thing. There is a reason for me right now in this recovery process to be hurt. You know, someone hurt me, so that's fine. But I'm an adult in charge of my life. Like I have my life back. I have control of my life back. I can make choices that will make me happy and I have the power to do that. But I just don't know what those choices should be. I mean, that's, you know, where I am right now with this is that I, nothing makes me happy. Things that used to make me happy don't make me happy anymore. Nothing fills that space. It's just this empty, dark, you know, smoking crater. And, and I can't quite get there. And then, you know, we came to this point in this chapter where Shonda Rhimes says, I know I don't have the right to complain. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. and this is something that people say all the time. And I, and I want to pick that apart because first of all, if something is genuinely wrong, you have not only the right to acknowledge it, but the responsibility that's not complaining. That's just facing the reality of your life, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, you think about it, like, well, what if you do have the right to complain? What if terrible things have happened to you? You know, what is the flip side of that? And the thing is, is that terrible things have happened, you know, Kelly, to both you and me, like we have had difficult things happen and, and people have, have treated us really, really terribly in some, in some very, very horrible ways. And I accept that, but it's not about the complaint. Like, I just don't want to use that terrible things have happened to me as an excuse to be miserable that because somebody did this to me because somebody did this to my kids that now I have a right to be miserable. You know, this is something that my mother did um, all throughout her life was she would deliberately create miserable situations so that she had a reason to say, this is why I'm not changing it. This is why I'm not doing anything. This is why I'm not making it better. You know, that, that if you have a right to complain that if something terrible has happened to you, if you've had, you know, life shit on you in a really terrible way, that somehow that stands as an excuse to not make it better. And, you know, for me, I don't want an excuse. You know, I want to be happy. I want to chase that happiness. And I don't care what happened to me. I don't care that, you know, I had an emotionally abusive childhood, which I think is part of what led me into an emotionally abusive marriage. My first marriage was not. My first marriage was a desperate attempt for me to find the family that I wanted. And it wasn't 
what I wanted it to be. You know, mm-hmm. my first husband is a good man and he and I are still friends and we have a strong relationship that was not an abusive relationship, you know, but this, this second relationship, I think I fell into because those patterns of letting someone else define my reality to tell me what was real and what was true about me, you know, which is the big thing that they, they tell you, they use those, those things and those doubts that you have about yourself and let you believe that they are true because it gives them power. You know, my mother did that and number two did that. Um, and I understand that that wasn't my fault and that I did deserve that. And that in that circumstance, I'm a victim, but I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to use that as an excuse to be miserable. I want to get past that so that I can chase what makes me happy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's kind of like what I was thinking about during this this part of the story when she's saying maybe. And there's a point where she says, as long as I was writing, as long as my fingers were on the keyboard, as long as I was at Seattle Grace or Pope and Associates, as long as I was laying track and feeling the hum in my brain, I was fine. I was happy. And like, this is that split in me. Like when I'm working, when Mm -hmm. I'm talking about these stories, when I'm teaching story, I'm happy. And that was a part of me that, that even during the marriage that he couldn't touch and he couldn't ruin and he couldn't poison. Like I loved that work and it made me happy, you know, but when I'm not doing that, you know, when I'm not working and this is part of the reason why I've been working myself, you know, into a a physical exhaustion over the last, you know, 10 months or so, um, you know, I love my kids and they give me a lot of joy, you know, and I understand that I'm in recovery from six years of abuse and I'm still living in the house where he did these things to me and I'm still living in the town where he did these things to me. I'm sleeping in the bed where he did these things to me. And, you know, can I be happy now, even here in this place? And I don't know what the answer is to that question. Like, I don't know how I pursue that happiness, but there is something though. I do actually have a story to tell. There's this thing that she says. Um, she says, whatever that spark is that makes each one of us alive and unique, mine had gone stolen. Like the paintings on the wall, the flickering flame responsible for lighting me up from the inside, making me glow, keeping me warm. My candle had been blown out. I was shut down. I was tired. I was afraid, small, quiet, and that's where I am right now. And, and so I'm going to share a story that is actually about my first husband um, after our divorce, which was very, very hard on him. And, and I will always regret how difficult that was for him. Um, but there was a point, and this is a guy who just like was not built to, I think, and I hope he, he forgives me for telling this story because I, <laughs> I, I actually think it's a really beautiful story and I, I love him for this. But um he was always the guy like he wanted to live in a van down by the river. That was always like his dream. You know, he didn't want to to work a full-time job and have a wife and kids. And it wasn't what he wanted, but it was what he felt he should do. And so we did that. And then it ended up being something that made him miserable. And after we broke up, you know, he went through this whole personal transformation. And there was one point where he called me and he was like, Hey, I have this idea and I want to run it by you. And I'm like, sure. What is it? And he was like, I want to live in my car. He's like, he had a full-time job. Like he wasn't going to quit his job. He wasn't going to do it. He was going to give up his apartment. He was going to live in his car. And in every moment that he wasn't working, he was going to do this thing called kite sailing, where you basically like, I still don't understand what it is, but it's basically you take a kite 
and you go out like on the water or on the snow with a snowboard and you let the wind carry you through it. It's like, oh, it's wow. like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I still don't understand it, but it's very, very cool. And he said, I want to live in my car. I want to put all the money that I make, you know, and, and, you know, like from the job and everything, put that into the college fund for the kids. You know, I just want to live in my car. And I was like, honey, absolutely. You should do this. And <laughs> I, I knew him. I've known him for 25 years now, you know, like I know him so well and I knew that that was what he needed and that being in this traditional lifestyle with this house and this mortgage and the wife and the kids, he loved us, but he couldn't, it wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what lit him up. His candle had gone out in our marriage like long before, you know, and that was part of the reason I think why the marriage had died was, you know, he and I have, have a great affection for each other. And I think we're really good friends. You know, we were never a great love story, but we we're always really good friends, you know. And when he told me this, I was so excited for him. And his dad called me and his dad was freaked out. And his dad was like, oh, my God, his dad is the most <laughs> wonderful man. I mean, he's my ex-father-in-law, but he is more of a father to me than I've ever had in my life. And I love this man to this day with all of my heart, all of my soul. He's one of the most amazing human beings I've ever had the, the incredible privilege to know is my, my ex-father-in-law, who I still think of as my dad, you know. But um but he called me and he was like, okay, I'm really worried about this. And I said, it's fine. This is exactly what he needs to do. And, and so my, my father-in-law was like, okay, then, you know, if you think it's right, he just trusted me. He's like, if you think it's right, I'm going to, you know, trust you. I'm going to trust, you know, number one, and I'm going to, I'm going to let this be. And he was then supportive of this plan. And so number one went and did this and he was so happy. I mean, you could see the transformation in him was palpable. He was more connected with the girls than he has ever been. He was more connected with himself than he has ever been. He was happy for the first time since since we'd met when he was 21 and he was living in a, you know, tent outside of a cannery in Alaska, which was wow. perfect for him, right? You know, um, this was the lifestyle that he needed to live and he had found himself and it was so wonderful to see him be that happy, but it was only possible because he looked at himself and he looked at his life and he said, these are the things that I want, even though I feel like I shouldn't want them. And I feel like living in your car should be a shameful thing. I mean, he went to the YMCA and that's where he showered and he worked out and he lost weight and he was in shape and he was doing so great. And I look at him doing that thing and making that choice and the kind of courage that it took for him to do that. And to this day is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen another human being do. And I'm, I'm still so proud of him that he found that and that he did that, even though like what people think, especially the people in his family means so much to him, but mm -hmm. he did this thing anyway. And it really is still to this day, one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. And I think about that and I'm like, what is my kite sailing? Yeah. What is my living in my car? You know, I mean, right now I've got kids, I've got to get them into college, I've got to get them, you know, moving forward in their lives. And so I need to maintain the life that I have right now, because I, I need to make sure that they get launched properly, you know. Mm -hmm. But like, I have a couple of years now to figure out what my kite sailing is. And I don't that. know what it is. I don't know myself, I think as well as even number one knows himself. But I want yeah. to find that thing. I love it. What a great story. Yeah. No, it was it was really incredible. It was really an incredible thing to witness. And I'm, I'm so, so proud of him. No, I think that's that's part of my issue, too. I don't know what my yeah. kite sailing is either. Yeah. I don't know. 
but you just got to kind of find it and you know yeah. whatever the hell people think screw him you know <laughs> like I knew the second he told me I knew it was the right thing for him to do and it was amazing to see that transformation in him and I want that transformation for myself and I think I'll, I'll get there but I don't know what will. it is just yet you know yeah. so so what did you get out of chapter two so I when she, the quote that, that first pulled me is she said, mm-hmm. if they had asked me, I would have said no. Right. When she was talking about sitting in the in the presidential box. Um, because I think a lot of the time my first instinct is to say no. And she talked about being a kid and said she was content to live within her imagination. Mm-hmm. And she talked about being in the pantry, you know, and playing with all the cans. And she had yeah. like this whole world in there. And she said, man, that pantry was fun. And I thought, man, those books were fun. <laughs> it was the exact same thing for me. Yeah. So, like, I would have wanted to, you know, like, I would hide in a closet or in a tree or in, like, some small corner. It was, like, me in a small place with a book. And, like, that was happiness. Yeah. Um, and when she talked about the grenade going off and she's like, I'm miserable. I'm miserable. Like, who in the hell do I think I am? And it's this... Mm-hmm. What right do you have to be miserable? Yeah. And I was raised, you know, very much in the be grateful and do not complain. Camp, right. You know, yeah. and basically the message that I hear from from family is like with all the mistakes that I have made and all the bad things that I have done, I need to remember how lucky I am. Like always, always, always just be grateful. Like because you screwed up a lot of shit, Kelly, and you damn well need to be grateful. So, oh like my do not complain. God. Like, this is this is the dialogue. That is always. a narrative I cannot fathom because you are so fucking badass. <laughs> you went back to school with a toddler on your hip and made that shit happen. Like you're one of the most impressive people I have ever met. So the idea that you know, because you got pregnant and because you had a bad relationship, an abusive relationship, that somehow that is the defining part of that story. That is not the defining part of the story. The defining part of the story for me, when I think about you, is just what you have done under unbelievable circumstances. It is so impressive. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, I just, but like, like, I can't accept that my, narrative. My, I can't accept it. <laughs> my family would define it differently. and Well, they'd be like, wrong. But I mean, but I had a lot of my family help. Like they took mm-hmm. care of him when I was in class. And like, so the, their narrative of that would be very, very different. And, and, and like, that was not my first bad relationship with a guy. And it was not my first screw up. And like, I have a history, I mean, I had a history of making very bad decisions. And so it's always mm-hmm. like, you know, you've screwed a lot of shit up. You need to be grateful for what you have and quit complaining. And, and like, th- it's just burned into me. And, and it even yeah. was when I was a kid. So it's it that narrative is hard to fight. Um, I can understand then, that, but it is also wrong. I just I just want to <laughs> say for the record that that is the wrong fucking narrative of your life. But anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, no. So and then the other the other quote that really got me here. Um, she said, "Any actual parts of me, anything real, anything human, anything honest, I kept to myself. I was a very good girl. I did what everyone needed me to do." And yeah. I think this was the kind of adult version of me yeah so like once my son was born and I I took on this this responsibility armor you know in like this this very intentional way um and and my first experience with this was just a couple days after he was born um, I had a very high postpartum fever I mean like really high fever and it was either a brother or a cousin I I was so delirious I can't even tell you who it was Uh needed help 
writing a paper about Shakespeare. So I am recovering from childbirth, Mm -hmm. right? Like still like stitches, high fever, delirium, have not slept, like literally delivered a human being like 48 (laughs) hours before. Oh my God. This is my state. Okay. And my mother wakes me up (laughs) to ask for help with this paper. And I write the fucking paper under this fever (laughs) delirium. (laughs) This is my first memory after having this baby. (laughs) Oh my God. Writing this paper for somebody that needs help. Um, because like the way that that I was raised and brought up is like your current state does not matter if someone needs you. Like if you have something and someone needs you, you damn well do what they need. Um, uh-huh. And that for some reason, the Shakespeare story came back to me when I was writing this. I had completely forgotten about oh it. I don't God. know why. That's <laughs> of all so things, crazy. That came back to me. Um, but it did (laughs) but like working to take care of everyone and giving till it hurts was like that's the definition of love that I was Mm -hmm. raised on yeah um because that's what I was taught that love looks like Mm -hmm. but that's not what love looks like you know right yeah and like even in my immediate family um or or the, the friends that I was close to when my son was growing up no one knows the story of my ex um Mm -hmm. because I didn't tell anyone and no one know that he was beating you they didn't (gasps) know and no one really cared enough to ask (laughs) oh my oh my god um like nobody knew what he was like nobody knows the stuff that he did to me i didn't like the first person i told i was in my Mm mid-30s in graduate school um because one of my best friends i had met in that program started going through a divorce and she finally got brave enough to tell us about the abuse that she had been living with Oh, my God. And so when she started telling her story and, and struggling with it, I told her mine to help her mm-hmm. feel better. And and in the sharing of those stories, like, we helped each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, meeting you and going through it with your, you know, with you, like, you two were, were two of the only first and only people. Like, it was, wow. it was just so, <laughs> it, it's difficult to do. And it's, um, yeah. But, but I didn't have anyone who really cared, like, enough. Mm-hmm. It was more like, okay, you need to get your shit together and raise this baby. And, like, there wasn't a lot of time or space to, to process it or to, yeah. you know, or to deal with it or to heal it. Um, and he has gone on to abusive relationships since yeah. like he, mm-hmm. he has a, a pattern of, of domestic violence um yeah and I think about that sometimes and it's like well damn that took years <laughs> like years yeah and I, and it's 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 not an easy thing to share because it feels um it still feels like a lot of that the ugliness of that or the darkness of that it still feels like it was something drawn from me. Yeah. And I like, mm-hmm. I know better, like logically I know better. I get that, right. but it is so hard to shake it. You know, like it, oh, it's yeah. just, it's really hard to shake it, you know? Um, and so like, even now, you know, I take care of my son um, years ago, things shifted in my parents' world, and my dad got really sick, and I take care of them, too, and I mm-hmm. have for years. And so, like, my role in life is defined by the care and keeping of other people. Right. 
and I'm the last person on that list. And so like sometimes friends will say, well, Kelly, who takes care of you? And mm-hmm. and people love to ask that question and they always think they're the first person who's <laughs> right. at it, you know, as if I have failed to notice <laughs> like yes. that no one else is there, like that no one else is helping or no one is waiting to dance with me in my kitchen. Like mm-hmm. I notice, yeah. <laughs> like, believe me, mm-hmm. notice has been paid. <laughs> I, I just don't have a choice in the matter. And, right. you know, I take care of me. I just mm-hmm. don't usually do a great job because I'm fucking exhausted from taking care oh, of everyone sure. else. <laughs> of course. So I think that like I keep the, the stories to myself and go back to work because mm-hmm. there's just no other choice. Right. You know, and so that that has been kind of part of that. So sort of this idea of maybe has only been sharing this only in in recent years. I think was was part of the difference for me, but it does help. I mean, it really yeah. does help. And I think it helps other people and it helps to be able to say it does get better. Yeah. You know, and it helps me to be able to tell you that because yeah. it does get better. Yeah. You know, and I'm rambling again forever. I feel like I just talked for 15 minutes. No, I love it. First of all, <laughs> you didn't talk for that long. <laughs> My first husband living in his car took longer than that. But um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that those are important stories. And, and like you telling me your story when I was still trying to deny that it was my story like I didn't want that to be true I didn't want that to be true so hard that I let him convince me that it wasn't true over the summer you know I let him pull me back into that that really twisted reality for a while you know until he did Mm -hmm. something again of course as horrible um and and I finally kind of came out of it so I've really only been acknowledging and accepting you know, that this is my reality for the last like couple of months, you know, mm. and it's um, so hard. it is, it's, it's really, so it's really hard because you don't want it to be true. And, you know, I think about like, what is it about me? Like, why did he choose me? And he chose me the same way he chose the woman before me and the victim afterward, you know, that's mm. the pattern he has. So I don't know. Um, I, I was just the, the right victim at the right time, I guess. And, and that's why it happened to me. And you were the right victim at the right time. And that's why it happened to you. But it's not about you. And it's not about your darkness. And yeah. it's not about me or my darkness. You but know, it is it is funny, though, how fast like reality can shift. Because yeah. so like we the last time I had talked to him, I think I was four or five months pregnant. Um, and then he left without looking back or word yeah you know hi still alive need anything like there was none of that Mm -hmm. um and then a friend of ours an ex friend of ours Mm -hmm. had run into him after my son was born um and you know told him that that the baby had been born and and everything and he called me it was the day of my six-week checkup oh god yeah it was awful yeah and he did not say how are you how is the baby? Are you okay? How is labor? <laughs> what did you name him? Like, do you need anything? Like, there was none of these questions. What did he say? He said, I can't believe you didn't call me. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, I can't believe you didn't call me. As if all of this was somehow my choice. Yeah. As if it was on me to have let him know. Like, and, and in my head, I started thinking, 
well, I didn't know you wanted me to call you. Like the right. whole narrative <laughs> exactly. started spinning, yeah. you know? And, and, and so he had me spinning on that for mm-hmm. like a good 20 minutes. And of course, like by then I'm crying and sobbing and scared mm-hmm. and shaking and the whole thing is awful. And then he said, put that baby in the car and bring him to me. Oh my God. And for the first time in over two years, I said, hell no. Uh-huh. Like that, that, that was then a line because the Kelly that had given birth was not the same Kelly that he had known. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was able to say no and hang up the phone. Wow. And I never heard from him again. Oh my God. But he had me spinning before that. And it was yeah. so easy. Mm-hmm. One, one sentence. Yeah. You know, and, and it is amazing how that can happen, mm-hmm. you know, and your sense of, of self can be shaken so fast. Yeah. So I, I you know, I hear you, baby. And I, <laughs> I didn't want that to be your, your truth either. Yeah. But it does get better. I yeah. Promise. But it is, you know, accepting the reality of it is the only way through it. You yeah. know, that's it the is. only way to go. Mm-hmm. All right, so chapter Woo-hoo! three. These this are is fun, fun, fun stories. <laughs> this is really an amusing. God, I wonder if anybody's even listening anymore. Oh, All I right, know. So, <laughs> so chapter three is um yes, and she talks about parties and about birthdays and how she loves her birthday, which I thought was really um really kind of interesting because like. Mm-hmm. I haven't loved my birthday since I was a small child. Like I don't, I don't enjoy being the center of attention. I know that sounds weird because I have a media company that is all about, Hey, listen to me, talk about stuff. Um, But I actually don't like that part of it. You know, I don't like for things to be about me, but I was thinking about this and I'm like, you know, what is the happiest birthday that I remember? You know? Yeah. And actually the happiest birthday in recent memory for me is when I turned 39. And this was after I had left number one, uh, right at the beginning of the relationship with number two, but he wasn't in my life yet. He hadn't moved to America. He hadn't uh, come in and kind of poisoned my life the way that he would some months later. But um, it was, I was living with my friend, Jen, who had taken me and my kids in when, um, when I divorced uh, number one. And um, she was wonderful. And she, we hung out together and we podcasted together because I made her podcast with me. Um, (laughs) And we did all sorts of fun stuff. And she had during the weeks, you know, up until my birthday had, had gotten with the girls and had planned like this whole thing. And, and she made me this big painted wood angel that I still have. Um, and she decoupaged like clips from my, my good book reviews, um, and put those on it. And it has all these things like Lonnie Rich is amazing. And this book is incredible and all this kind of stuff. She made this uh, red canvas carry on bag that she painted with a little, uh, bat on it, which is a fun story that I probably will tell someday, but I'm not going to write now, but the (laughs) bat was a big symbol for us. Um, and, uh, and she painted my name on it. It still says Lonnie Diane Rich on it. And, um, and it was really beautiful and they made this cake and threw me a surprise party the girls made me little frames with pictures of them in them and they had done all these little crafts together um and it was the first and the last time that anyone has ever done anything like that for me and that year that I lived with her before number two came in before he split us up because that's the first thing abusive people do. They, they come into your relationships and they split you off from the people that will see them for what they are. Um, and that will tell you what they are, you know? Um, and it was before that. 
And it was really like the happiest time of my adult life, you know, was, was living in that magical house on the Ohio river with my friend, Jen. Um, and then number two came in and he took over my world and he poisoned the space between me and Jen and, and I lost her, you know, I mean, we're still friends now, but it's, it's never, it's not even close to what it was, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm sad for that. Um, And, you know, and then she was talking about, you know, Shonda Rhimes was talking about the conspiring universe, like a week Mm -hmm. after she makes this decision to say yes to everything, she gets a call to deliver the commencement speech at Dartmouth. (laughs) And, you know, and there was that quote, too, that I think was from, uh, from Rising Strong, I think that that if you're on the right path, the universe will conspire to help you. Uh And I think sometimes the universe conspiring to help you feels a lot like the universe conspiring to like make you insane. You know, <laughs> it feels a lot. like the universe will also challenge you where you need to be challenged, you know, mm-hmm. and Shonda's call to the universe was, I will say yes to everything for a year. And thinking about this now, I'm like, what is my call to the universe? And like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what specific yes is going to, integrate me, you know, and make me whole again. And I, I don't even know, honestly, at this point, if that's even possible, I know it's something that I'm going to work toward. Um, But I think that's part of what the telling of these stories, I think that's part of what that's going to do for me is it's going to lead me to whatever my specific yes is for Shonda, it was say yes to everything, you know, for me, it's going to be I think a specific yes, and I don't know what that's going to be. But you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Can't wait to find out. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. So, what did you get out of this chapter? So, um, birthday parties have never really been my jam. Mm-hmm. But I used to love like being loved on my birthday. Oh. Um, however, <laughs> the universe trickster irony, right? My son was born on my twenty-first birthday. Yeah. So when I went into labor, I was still twenty. But that ran for more than 24 hours. And so Mm -hmm. we have the same birthday. (laughs) So I have spent the last 18 years throwing birthday parties for him. And it's not really a celebration I think about for myself anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had an Elmo birthday and a Chuck E. Cheese birthday and a Hot Wheels birthday and a Super Mario birthday. And it's (laughs) not my birthday anymore. (laughs) But this year I turned 40. And that's a big fucking deal. So I am celebrating somehow. Um, also now I look 40, <laughs> I feel 40 and I wish I could roll the clock back on my face back to my twenties. But, you know, at her birthday, Shonda Rhimes decides to say yes to everything that scares her for a year, right? That's mm-hmm. her deal with the universe. That's her year of yes. And so when my son was born, my deal with the universe was about saying no. Mm-hmm. So it was about saying no to everything that was not focused on that baby and my work. So like no to everything that felt it might call back even a little to that wild girl who made such terrible choices and could not trust her instincts. So no to anything too exciting, no to serious Mm -hmm. creativity, no to big love, no to big change, no to adventure, no to putting myself first in any way, shape or form. So if you take big magic and you invert it, (laughs) (laughs) like in this terribly misguided attempt to be a selfless, hardworking mother. Like, that was my seriously fucked up deal with the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, did it make me happy? Um, no. <laughs> so, no. I do not recommend this path. No. Yes. But Shonda Rahm said, 
I would believe and I would say yes. And so now I'm wondering, what do I believe in and what do I say yes to, right? And so for me, the answer to this in some form or another always seems to be about love and magic. Mm -hmm. But I have no fucking idea what that means, (laughs) how to do it. I have no idea. You know, am I even asking the right questions in the first place? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, I really don't know. So I'm here telling crazy ass stories with you and (laughs) rambling and making my face turn red and feeling like an idiot and thinking maybe somewhere in the middle of this, I will find the right thing to say yes to. (laughs) All right. Okay. So I think that that's good. You know, we're both kind of in the same place. We we know we've got a yes that we've got to find. Um, Yes. So one of the things that we've been doing, whenever we end, you know, Big Strong Yes, we talk about, you know, what is your big challenge? What is your aha moment? You know, what is your yes? And I think that that what we should come down to is really what is the big yes? Like, what mm-hmm. is the yes for this week? What are what are the things that we're, we're doing and we're saying yes to that can maybe lead us to what our, our big strong yes should be? But that's the culmination of this whole experiment that we're going to find <laughs> our own personal big, strong yes. What do we need to say yes to? So so for this week, my yes is just telling my stories. I have been very hesitant to tell my stories because when I speak publicly about any of this, I get threats um, and, uh, and, and that and is really so terrible not things. okay. Like that is not okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, your story and you can tell it wherever you want. Exactly. I'm, I'm with Anne Lamott. If you wanted me to speak warmly about it, you should behave better, you know. Right. Um, but I think that like right now, like I don't want to be afraid of him anymore. I, I want to mm-hmm. talk about what I experienced and what this was, you know, and, and not just about him. I mean, there's a whole life of of stories and of things that I, I haven't dealt with and I haven't processed. And I think that's what made me such an ideal victim for him you know, Mm -hmm. at the time that he found me. And so now at this point, I'm going to process this stuff. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to be open about it. And I'm going to see where that leads me. So telling my stories here is a big yes for me. And so that, (laughs) that is my yes for right now. So what about you? I think my yes might be trying to keep up with you. (laughs) (laughs) I had had thought about some kind of countdown to 40 because that happens in about 65 days. Oh so, my God. I know. Yeah. Like some kind of idea and trying to figure out like why that matters so damn much to me. I know. You know, it's really just know. a day. It's I know. Just a it's just another it's just a, year, you know, but right. it feels, it feels it really feels important. significant. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I'm going to play around right. with it. Yeah. Well, well I like that. I think that's cool. All right. So that pretty much winds this up for us. We are most active on Twitter. So follow hashtag Big Strong Yes for announcements and discussion. You can follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones. You can also email us. Email us your stories if you don't want to tell them publicly. You can email them to us. We will read them. We will enjoy them. We will let you be heard at bsy at chipperish.com. And if you like Big Strong Yes, here's how you can support the show. Review us on Apple Podcasts, tweet at us with the hashtag BigStrongYes, and support Chipperish at patreon.com slash chipperish, which also gets you into the Discord chat, which is an amazing place to talk about the stories that you love. Yeah. And we always end with a closing quote. Today's closing quote is from fairy tale scholar Jack Zipes, who said, The role of the storyteller is to awaken the storyteller in others. 
Big Strong Yes is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To find out how you can support Big Strong Yes and everything Chipperish Media does, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks, y'all.